I don't know, I've just always thought in my life, you'd, you see it when you were younger and you'd see like your parents would pass like a random black person on the street and you'd just see the, the nod. The, yeah, um, the nod, the nod. You um, would sit there and you'd, and you'd just go, do you know them? <laughs> no. Oh. But and do you like nod now though? Do you nod now yes. though? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. All the time I'm like, um... um Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Angelo, your resident troublemaker. As part of the education special for Black Guys in a Box, I interview three amazing women. Bethany, who's a research manager for the Black Curriculum. Savannah, a University of Sheffield BME committee member and former head of the University of Sheffield ACS. And Shabazz, a recently qualified midwife. Uh, We start with Bethany talking about the black curriculum, and in particular, how it came about. Lavinia is actually, so Lavinia is the founder and CEO of the um, black curriculum. And I guess so in 2019, so this is last year, January, she had already won some money, uh, a pot of money to put on a project. And she already had this idea. And myself and um, my friend Lisa also had like a similar, it wasn't exactly the same, but just a similar idea. So we, um, Lisa did um, met Lavinia at, say, like a black women's group. And um, so Lavinia, uh, Lisa told me about Lavinia. So we all sat down together and just like, I guess our passions just align. So we thought, Let, let's just do it. Let's just start something. So Lavinia leading it, we built a team of people and that there were people to design like our actual syllabus um and then in october 2019 we piloted the uh, the um syllabus so that's kind of kind of how it all kind of started so we carried out interviews for people to join the team so we had like researchers advisors content creators um and i led the the researchers so they were doing the so we had um four different modules which were uh, i don't know if you know about the modules so we have um art history politics and legal system um land and the environment and migration so yeah i just led the researchers that were um researching each of these topics and just giving them advice along the way and looking over their work and then it was like a full circle so we had content creations lisa was the head of them um, so then when it came to the end of it, we just put everything together. We had advisors to give us advice on the, the um, content that had been created. And then we piloted it in October 2019. The term black became a political battleground in the year 2020. The phrase Black Lives Matter will be synonymous with it in the history book. A phrase that came about in the wake of the murder of George Floyd at the hands of the police and then co-opted when news of Breonna Taylor's murder also became popular, even though she had died several months previously. A number of sports leagues went to show their solidarity for Black Lives Matter before it was deemed too political and instead changed to statements that reflected their intolerance towards racism and their desire to stamp it out. Somewhat interesting that the phrase Black Lives Matter, though, was deemed too political. So I started by asking Bethany the question, is the black curriculum only for black children? No, like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's for all young people. It's for all young people to learn, because we believe that all young people can benefit from the black curriculum. But we do have a focus on teaching black students 
black history so that they know their history and teaching that just emphasizing that black history is British history so yeah it's for everyone. The idea of it being for all students is especially poignant in a month in which we have seen record complaints against dance group diversity and comedian Nabil as well as the Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch arguing against teaching white privilege and a pure gym trainer creating a 12 years a slave workout. The latter two are by black people, which is perhaps why Bethany felt the need to point out that we do have a focus on teaching black students. At the time of recording, the pure gym fiasco, where a trainer, a black trainer, had come under fire for producing a 12 years a slave themed workout was something that everybody wanted to talk about. Here, I joke with my friend Savannah about the quote-unquote history of slavery as it often seems to be taught in schools, which is perhaps a reason why we ended up with the pure gym fiasco in the first place. And of course that kind of feeds into this narrative that you can only talk about black history through the lens of slavery as if kind of there's oh, been God. nothing before or after that, that that's happened it's just like you were slaves then you kind of had like reggae reggae chicken and then oh, Nando's <laughs> opened and now we're here <laughs> massive massive pet peeve massive pet peeve for real this idea that black history is synonymous with slavery and I think that's how you end up with um well intentioned I suppose but terrible campaigns like that 12 years a slave one um that was is it pure gym because when <laughs> yeah. you, i mean i was so hesitant to say oh, this is what happens when you don't have black people on the board because then it was a black guy who came up with it because you can look at his instagram and he genuinely was educating himself i suppose about these things and while the um, black lives matter movement was happening but it's like he completely missed the spot when it came to empowering black history and not this idea that it's just slavery or even to say that slavery was hard so is this workout like just basic emotional intelligence and I can't believe that pure gym allowed him to take the weight of that um you know the backlash afterwards it's just really absurd it's just another case of I don't know it just seemed like unpaid black labor again and then just taking the brunt of it all when it goes wrong I asked Bethany if they had encountered resistance in their mission to get the black curriculum into schools, and she was emphatic. Yeah, we've definitely found resistance. I think um, as soon as you have something that's black, people get a little bit scared and people are put off. Um, so I think we definitely have had resistance, but we've also had an equal balance. We've also had a balance of people really being on board on le and learning and um, teaching Black history, um, especially teachers that don't know much about Black history. They've definitely reached out to us and um, been more than happy to take uh, take this into the classroom. But they just have the lack of tools and skills to do so. So we we've just been there in place to try and lead um, that and try and equip them with the correct. Um, tools and abilities to go into a classroom and lead a session that's centred around Black British history. The importance of the work that the Black curriculum are doing cannot be understated. The Runnymede Trust released a report at the start of the year that said there was a, quote, need for more racial literacy among teachers. This is something that Alan knows all too well. I was in high school when Obama was elected for his first term. And I remember the school newspaper asked me 
what I was going to do to celebrate or as a response or how I felt about it. Same thing, because I was probably one of half a black person in the school. Uh, and I remember my response being very like tongue in cheek because I was like, I'm gonna go get a box of KFC and eat some watermelon and just be like the blackest ever. And then at the time, you know, I don't know why I actually had that response. I think maybe it's a bit of frustration at having been asked the question. Um, but then I was called into the administrative office to to basically explain why I had um, responded in such a stereotypical way. So to explain my comment to my white like administrators um, when that question shouldn't have been posed to a 16 year old in the first place as the only black face amongst a sea of white people. What Alana describes there the seemingly innocuous question followed by the incredulity when she responded in a way that was unexpected is a classic example of a microaggression, something that Bethany was happy to give us more information on. When it comes to microaggressions, I think it's just so, so much easier to give examples of just mm. like, for example, you go for a job interview and you wear braids and braids are seen as less professional that like, they're seen as unprofessional unprofessional hairstyle um compared to you know if a white woman came into an interview and just had straight hair um so it's it's things like just that subtle kind of yeah actually I, I'm taking away the word subtle because I don't think it's subtle I think it's quite I, I actually don't think it's subtle most of the time but I just think people just don't understand that they are saying things so the need for the black curriculum is made clear by Savannah current University of Sheffield BME, which stands for Black and Minority Ethnic Committee member and former head of the African Caribbean Society. Recalling her time at school, she struggled to recall any black history being taught. God, I am genuinely, genuinely trying to remember at least one year out of from reception to year six. Well, no, even year 11, where it was explicitly celebrated. And I don't think it was. The only memory that I have is um, learning about Mary Seacole in year two. And because that was year two, I don't remember like if it was for Black History Month. But even then, my mom had already taught me about Mary Seacole because she was also like a Jamaican nurse. And so it wasn't anything particularly special that I was learning that was new. For other students, yes. But for, oh gosh, really, there was nothing at all that I can remember. I, I think I learned when Black History Month was in the UK, not until year seven, like for, you know, community youth stuff outside mm -hmm. of school, mm -hmm. but not actually within the schools that I went to now. I actually studied at the University of Sheffield with Savannah and we ended up having a laugh and a joke about a video project that I did where I asked a number of the African Caribbean Society students what they'd learned during Black History Month and everything came back to one man. Big one, that MLK. Someone used to come in the assembly and maybe taste all pans, learn how to dance. I don't remember anything I learned about Black History. And if it was probably about Martin Luther King. Mind you, there was, there was one assembly that I remember in secondary school, but again, that's one assembly in the whole month. There was no events or anything like that. Um, what was I don't the know what it's like now. What was, what was in the assembly? Something, 
I don't remember. I just remember it being Black History Month. So it was nothing that really stood out as... Exp- it was probably more awkward than everything because me and my two Black friends in the whole year probably looked at each other like, wow, it's it's that time. It's that time. <laughs> but yeah, nothing. I just remember I have like um, nothing to do with Black History Month, but more learning about Black history. So say our curriculum had African-American civil rights um, or... What was the other thing? Oh, th- we had this really awkward session about slavery in year nine, where we kind of some people, somebody had to pretend to be. Um, oh gosh, he's, I can't pronounce his name. Do you know that famous um, slave? Um, Savannah goes on to describe an event in which pupils at her primary school would play the role of historical figure Ola Uda Equiano, known for most of his life as Gustavus Vassa the writer and abolitionist from the Igbo region of the Kingdom of Benin. Me and my friend kind of laughed about it because I do stories about it all the time, right? And my friend kind of laughed about it the other day because she's like this small, petite white girl who was singing one of his songs pretending to be him. And then a few people pretending to be in a slave ship, like lying down, just really awkward ways to learn about the transatlantic slave trade, which I don't really remember learning much other than that it was not not what I wanted, how I wanted to be learning it with like being one of the, I think, was it two black girls? Three mixed race girls in the year? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. While Savannah and I are laughing and joking, the consequences of racial ignorance are deadly. I was speaking with Shabazz, a recently qualified midwife, and more importantly, my little sister, and I asked her the question whether she fought the causes of the increased mortality rate for black women, which a report released this year showed to be five times higher, which means that black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth in the UK than white women, was a statistical anomaly, and she had some interesting insights. Do I think that it's a statistical anomaly? Absolutely not. Um, I think, you know, there are enough uh, facts and figures out there of these are the amount of black women who get pregnant, these are the amount of black women who survive their pregnancy, these are the amount of black women who survive their childbirth, um, and these are the amount of black women who will survive the first year um, after childbirth, because when they talk about the figures, they're talking about pregnancy and childbirth, so it's from conception until a year after the baby is born. Um, And... I asked Shabazz whether the higher maternal mortality rate for black women could be explained away at a biological or cellular level? So <clears throat> there are some, um, there are some conditions that if you are um, black, you have a higher, there is a higher chance that you will um, have these conditions during your pregnancy, that there's a higher chance that they will cause complications. But actually when you look into it, there's, there are certain conditions that if you are white, you're more likely to get in pregnancy and childbirth as well. Um, so you don't really, it, it becomes a question then of not asking, well, is it that you have genetic conditions that are the reason or, or hold on a second, well, there are genetic things either side of this argument. So why is it that still black women are more likely to die than white women? I felt compelled to ask whether what Shabazz was saying was that even if you factored in for socioeconomic status and other environmental factors, whether these rates of mortality were still higher for black women. Specifically, just if we're talking about um, 
conditions that might affect these people. I'm not taking into account any like social economical background situation right, okay. about that. But when you do start looking at that kind of aspect of it and you see, um, you know, people from poorer backgrounds across the board will normally have poorer health outcomes. Mm -hmm. But yet still, if you look at um, uh, people from poorer backgrounds who are from white backgrounds, white families, versus those that are from the black families who have exactly the same um, situation, still, it's still the black people who are suffering the most. It's still... Um, about people who are, are, are running into complications that they shouldn't necessarily be running into. Um, it's still about people that are ultimately dying from, 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 from this. And one of the things that um, I think is really important and is a, is a recurring theme when you talk to Black women about their experiences is, um, and it's sad because it's such a simple thing, it's just that they are not listened to. They're not listened to, they're not taken seriously. Um, does that play into a lot of stereotypes around black women that have been perpetrated by the, the media? Absolutely, that black women are loud, that they are um, trouble, gold diggers, single mummies. Um, let's hypersexualize them as well, just to add insult to injury. It's important to say that this issue of black women dying in childbirth is not just a UK problem. In 2017, the greatest tennis player of modern times, Serena Williams, had to diagnose her own pulmonary embolism and if she hadn't, she may have died in childbirth. Similarly, Beyonce suffered complications during her pregnancy. In 2018, the BBC produced a radio documentary titled What's Killing Black American Babies? and they were only able to surmise that something about the experience of living as a black American woman in the United States is killing their babies. One wonders if images that were circulated by an Australian newspaper after Serena Williams had lost the 2018 US Open final, depicting her looking like an angry caricature, plays into the stereotypes that Shabazz is talking about. A recurring theme of speaking to all of the women was this sense of frustration and paranoia that comes at not being believed. Now, this is one thing when it's to do with things that don't affect your future, but as Shabazz discusses with some of the issues that she had to deal with, it becomes a lot more serious when the issues threaten your very place at university. Um... An OSCE is essentially a um, oral examination, um, and it can, excuse me, it can be on any. It's not just midwives that have to do OSCEs. Nurses do OSCEs. Doctors do OSCEs as well. So it just depends on the the field that you're in as to what the um, subject will be. And my OSCEs were on midwifery emergencies. Um, they you have, I think. 11 minutes per scenario you will get given two scenarios you have to learn eight scenarios um, and they can pick any two that they they, they want to um, I turned around at this point because a lot of stuff had happened in the year that had absolutely made me feel like I was being a bit paranoid um, and I was starting to get to the point where I felt like I couldn't be objective about some of the stuff that was happening. So I was talking to a lot more people about it to get their opinion, to kind of be like, am I being paranoid or is this actually some, some ish? Like, 
do you know what I mean? Like, is, 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 this, is this some BS here or am I just being stupid? Um, and luckily for me, I've got a lot of supportive people around me who are also just not stupid and will happily call me out for my crap. Um, and they were very honest and said, actually, no, I think that what you're saying has got some, some merit. Shabazz's fears had merit. After failing the first Oski by a single mark, she told me how she had said to her partner that she felt that they would fail her a second time by two marks, which turned out to be the case. Now, usually you are allowed a third attempt at the Oski as long as it happens within 12 weeks, but as there had been a long delay between the first and the second, the 12-week period had expired. No problem, thought Shabazz, as many a midwife has been in this situation and special dispensation has been given. Shabazz picks up the story here. And essentially got pulled into a room. She had a pre-rehearsed speech just ready to go. That essentially said that because I hadn't met the criteria, the 12-week ruling was done. Um, the exam board have already met. I could have a third attempt, but I wouldn't be allowed to take that third attempt until the next September. Um, and this was at the beginning of December. <laughs> um, I obviously really fought my case and just said, you know, I know that there have been cases where people have been given opportunities and squeezed in and blah, 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 blah. And she just said, she just basically just shut it down, just said no. And were um, you the only student midwife that this affected? Absolutely, yeah. Shabazz went on to detail how her name had been brought up in negative ways once she had gone. Quite spiteful conversation. Um, and she said that they called into question whether or not I was intelligent enough to be a midwife. Um, they called into question whether or not I deserved it. Um, they said, as in I deserved to fail and I deserved to have to defer. It's interesting to note that the trust at which Bass was trained, which will of course remain unnamed, is now under investigation for racism, homophobia and transphobia, among other things. The importance of education is clear, especially in a sector like midwifery. A midwife's prejudices don't just harm the chances for a student to graduate, they can potentially harm a mother's life. And Shabazz was able to detail some examples of prejudicial treatment in her final year. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, essentially, I think it was just a lot of cultural stuff that they just didn't even want to entertain. Um, and instead of them just listening for five minutes, she was then just known as this difficult woman that nobody... And it, and it really did feed through. Like, the, the language that's used at handover will set your mood for the whole shift. Mm. And if you mm. are introduced to a woman that you've never looked after before, and you say, she's, she's a pain in the ass, she's non-compliant, she's so difficult, she's this, she's that, already you're biasing that, that healthcare provider from giving, mm. health, giving that care to that person and that person's child. Um, and that was like a recurring thing. I have so many examples of when I have cared for black women um, and the way that they get around essentially just absolutely annihilating them in handover. Whilst it's perhaps unsurprising that Shabazz's experiences with midwives treating black women are not positive, it was a surprise to me that it was also white mothers with black partners that also seem to receive less than stellar treatment. There have been a couple of comments that have been made by some of the midwives I've been working with regarding the coupling. Um, Such as? 
there was a um, white woman that I was caring for. She was approximately like five foot six, like like normal national height, and um, she had very big hips, um, very big thighs, but had quite. Sm- you could tell that she had quite a small frame, and obviously she was pregnant. And her husband, um, she never disclosed that her husband was black. Um, she just kept saying my husband, my husband, my husband and then when her husband turned up and he was a black man um, the midwife I was working with was quite shocked she made several comments said that the woman that we were caring for was punching well above her weight Um, she made comments about this woman's weight and just said you know, essentially just called her really fat and horrible she um, she submitted um, a day text which is like an instant report for the hospital saying that she had hurt her back because this woman was refusing to move and because she was so big and so heavy that she'd pulled her back out. Um, What she actually didn't say was that every time that she asked this woman to move was when this woman was having a contraction and she couldn't move. And she tried to drag her across the bed while she was having a contraction. Um, What I didn't like is that she put me into that day text without me knowing and without my permission and said that I had said the same thing. So tried to say that I was saying this woman was being uncooperative. Um, and then she made some comment about how, you know, at least the baby turned out nice, you know, the baby's actually quite good looking or something like that. It was just, it was just really inappropriate. Um, yeah, um, that woman obviously, and well within her rights, absolutely complained to the trust. Um, did anything come of that? I wouldn't, I wouldn't know, but probably not. Um, there was, uh, my first ever experience was working on a postnatal ward and the language that, um, is used to describe some of the black women is alarming. Um, they In are your always, presence. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, they never actually name them to be black women. I find that really interesting. They never name them, but you can tell by the way that they are describing them that it's always just like, hold on, they're going a little bit too far to like, just really slate that woman. So give us some, again, uh, give some examples. Um, so there was a woman that we were caring for antenatally. She was a very dark skinned black woman. Like her skin was just delicious. It was beautiful. Um, and her BMI, um, which I hate, I hate using BMI. It's so outdated. It's not for anyone apart from your average sized white man. Um, her BMI was quite high and they were sitting there talking going, and, and one of the reasons that she was in was that, um, she was ketotic, which basically meant that she wasn't eating and drinking enough. Um, and she had no appetite. And the comments coming out going, well, she obviously has an appetite because her ass didn't get that big on its own. Wow. I know you didn't. I know you did Keep it cool. <laughs> While Shabazz laughs, too much of what she says feels painfully accurate. Sophia Raquel, who wrote Insider Outsider, a report that looked at the role of race in shaping the experiences of black and minority ethnic students made this issue clear. Quotes such as, I've lost faith in the union and their values. I felt targeted as a BME staff member. In terms of my background and my ethnic origin, I don't feel as represented as I could be. And the damning quote, this place has a lot of white students who have these seemingly liberal views but when you get into it they're not as liberal as you might think and they don't understand that even if they think they do and maybe those same women on Shabazz's midwifery course didn't expect her to be a midwife because as Sophia Raquel's report highlights in an interview 
a lot of the workers doing cleaning and security are people of Latino, Black and African representation. You think compared to institutional academics, like the academic staff seem to be majority white, European, British. My first impression is that it's not representative of minority ethnic people. And here we see a problem, a key problem. Whilst it's true that many teachers can claim ignorance and say that they are unequipped to teach about black history, as was made clear in the Runnymede report released earlier this year, it's very difficult to change attitudes, which is why the black curriculum does have a very comprehensive teaching teachers program. Perhaps the idea behind this is that if you eradicate the ignorance, you can then work on whatever issues are underlying. We actually do have a teacher training programme. Um, and we've, def- we've partnered with different schools to lead on um, teacher training for them. So um, the, the teacher training it involves in just like talking about different language that they should use within classroom, classrooms, for example, um, taking away the word slaves and using end slaves um, and things like just how you actually approach these students and talk about these issues for example maybe set the classroom in a um, pit the students in a circle and you know have the teacher in that circle and they speak to them about um so we definitely do try to lead, just give teachers the best tools to go into a classroom and feel confident enough to actually speak about some of these difficult topics and to be clear This training is needed, not just at primary and secondary schools, but also in the university sector. I asked Savannah, who at the time that COVID struck and the Black Lives Matter movement became a worldwide one, how the University of Sheffield had responded. She at the time was still the president of the African Caribbean Society, as well as the Black and Minority Ethnic Committee member. I can I can split it between like departmental and then the university itself. Um, university itself was quite I think some people regarded it as quite slow, um, and they did put out a, a message, but then it got a lot of backlash because people found it to be quite hypocritical or um, a lot of unresolved issues then came out on the timeline, like in response to that message saying, well, what about this? I've come to you about this, blah, blah, blah. Um, Or justified. And it was like one of those things where it's like, well, they they couldn't win anyway, whatever they put out, because there was this obligation for like organisations to put out something. And then if it's rushed as well, it comes across as very like, you don't care. And then even if it's not, if, you're, you're, if your institution has already hurt so many people, then they're going to say something. Um, and so that was a thing. But also it was um, the fact that they listed a bunch of um, university um, groups that you should contact if you have uh, having problems with you know, if you, um, especially like BAME people, even though it's Black Lives Matter, BAME people BAME. can come to, yeah, BAME people can come to and speak to. The first one they listed was the BME committee, which I'm on, a student committee that we do voluntarily. And they were basically sending people to email us and say, basically profess their worries. And, you know, we're not, we haven't got any counseling training. We did it voluntarily. Um, in the year and this is at exam season as well 
and so it would really and they didn't ask us and so it's quite scary to see like the go on the twitter account and to send people to us before they've even said to go to like the university counselors um or like the adult BAME network and so that really well not adult I'm obviously an adult but you know I just kind of look up to like the actual staff like BAME network and so it really threw us off first of all and thankfully we had a meeting about it a few weeks later and the university refurbished like what they said and we spoke to the actual BAME staff network and kind of got everything out it was really nice to speak to like actual staff who were like experiencing the same thing um when it comes to the department now our department said nothing um, and it was kind of strange because it's the politics department and um, it was a thing when my friend, um, I might as well say her name, Abiba, um, she's quite good at spotting things that I don't spot sometimes. Like I didn't clock the university one straight away. She's like, Savannah, this is unpaid black labour. Like we're not trained psychologists. Why are they sending people to email us and we have exams? She got it right again with the politics department. She said, they always send out climate change um, protest um, precautions, um, the Women's March protest precautions. Why are they not sending out precautions for students to peacefully protest in Sheffield, for example? And the idea that this is a solely political movement rather than looking at the fact that it's a humans, human rights issue that's been discussed. And to at least, even if you don't want to, you're worried about the department aligning with the whole like US Black Lives Matters, Marxist, whatever. Um, acknowledging that there's something going on and if any students need support mm. to there, there's somebody to go to and so um, to cut a long story short we she emailed um, some staff and we managed to get a meeting in where we presented everything that has basically happened throughout the year and then how we felt most recently um, they're really receptive the heads of the department and so on um, and we've managed to get a committee set up now at the department where um, at first it kind of threw us off because it's called a diversity committee. And so it's just, we were like, okay, the, let's see what's going on here. Cause we did say we need something for black students. And um, then they said, you know, a lot of people have come forward to us about issues where they haven't been about represented, especially in the curriculum and how a lot of these issues are intersectional. And so to basically, I was like, okay, but specifically what, what would this like be doing? And to be fair, um, it's only about four times in the year. The first two meetings are concerning right getting, it's their staff present at the meetings as well. And so what you do, you get out what we want to do. And so actually like seeing like what concerns you have about the curriculum, about classes. So we covered like microaggressions, like the crazy things students have said to us in classes blah 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 and then in the second semester you actually start working on um actions and changing like reading lists if possible um pushing for like actual um um I'm, when we get there i'll let you know what happens <laughs> because i'm worried that there'll be that's why i was i didn't want to be there technically because i've done my job like i've helped set up this committee i don't think i need to be there it's my third year but now I feel like I need to be there because I'm worried that it will go down um, the whole race champions route. And I've seen some questionable diversity training sessions. And um, yeah, I think I need to be there just to like, you know, see what's going on and make sure that what we've set up is going in the right direction. So yeah, I'm, I am grateful for listening in the end, but I'm just saying we did have to like, as students push for it. 
Nationally, the University of Sheffield has a strong reputation. It was the Student Union of the Year 12 years running recently, and it's quick to tout the number of international students it has. Although, I don't feel that touting that the same week that you're talking about decolonizing the curriculum sends out the message that you think it should. But it does have one rather glaring issue, which is that it has not become a member of the Advanced HE Race Equality Charter, which was set up to provide a framework through which institutions work to identify and self-reflect on institutional and cultural barriers standing in the way of black, Asian and minority ethnic staff and students. As I wrote in a report in 2018, it is not a good look when the University of Sheffield is behind the University of Oxford when it comes to race equality. Race. Um, You'd never be able to tell as well to an extent with the whole... Um, just look around. Where, where are the black people? Where yeah. Are the people that, are, that are not cleaners. Do you know how many cleaners and like support staff that I kind of would talk to and be like... Because I'd make a point of just trying to talk to people that look like me and be like, mm. I haven't seen any lecturers, literally not a one in my department. Not a one. Yeah. I'm not there's any in the faculty, to be honest. Yeah, no, this is what's scary because I think it kind of does... I remember I was on the SU Council right in my first year and I was the only, I think, black person in the whole... I think there's 46 seats and I was in the BME role as well to make... I don't want to say to make matters worse, but gosh, like... I know what you mean. Really? Like, um, and that's why I was really happy. That was another reason I, I told him... I said in my... um. Thing that I want you know what do you call it your manifesto I really want to see black students in the student council where the decisions are being made and I know at least two or three people who were in the departmental roles which was really impressive like because I really I just I need to I really wanted to see black representation in roles that just didn't concern being black but actually because you are fantastic at your subject that you're doing and you don't you're not just in it because you know you ran at them but yeah, um, it's crazy because if you look at, remember the SU officers' roles, we've won 12th year in a row for the best students' union, yet we do not have a BME officer or anything of the sort. And if anything, hear this, hear this, this is what makes it worse. The women's officer role, it's called women's officer, yet underneath this role the criteria is you have to fulfill the needs of women's rights minority rights and also um lgbt like rights i guess that might come under minority as well but basically everything like all the others like big old 2020 <laughs> it's crazy and so when i went to i was also voted this is so funny in first year i think i did too much in the sense that I wasn't exactly like ready for it but I went for it and still was voted into these roles and so I was doing that role but I also went to the NUS Black Students Conference and um, that was interesting to see everyone I met really was a BME officer and I was like I didn't know that role existed so when they're saying to me oh what do you do I'm like oh I'm just a BME counsellor like I don't really have much of um, a say other than to hold like officers to account maybe to put forward any bills if I could, but it was awkward because what I'm one person and somehow I would have to like try and communicate with anyone who's not white on campus and say, what would you like to happen in the council? And they're going to say, what is the council? Because no one even knew what it 
was to actually do anything effective and also because I was a first year so it's like you know I don't think they I just don't think they care about the role that much I guess but I don't know I, I mean I, I'm not here to ban our Sheffield because I do see the um the things that they do try to do like you know on an individual like staff basis but it doesn't like it's not reflective in like how they then put it out to anyone who doesn't know about what's going on behind the scenes so I'm having these conversations like oh that was really good and then like I, I hear that all these terrible experiences that are actually happening on the ground and it's really frustrating yeah here Savannah hits on what is perhaps the key problem and the thing that links what's happening with the black curriculum and Shabazz's experiences as a trainee midwife and what's happening at the University of Sheffield to the nationwide discussions that are being had. Savannah points out that there are a number of very well-intentioned, hard-working and brilliant individuals on the ground at Sheffield who are earnestly working to make a better experience for the black and Asian and minority ethnic students. But whilst their work is being done in spite of a system that seems determined to undermine it, they can only make small changes. Similarly, an individual working for the common good in an institution that seemingly has no interest will only ever be able to make limited impact. I want to finish this on a positive note, so perhaps the last word should go to Bethany. Out of 2020 and the Black Lives Matter protest, I asked her if that had any impact on the black curriculum. And what's interesting is how, once again, a situation that starts with black pain has become an opportunity for black excellence. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has, it definitely has. So um, I don't know if you know, but we, re we led a campaign in June um, to get uh, a response from Gavin Williamson. Um, so I think with the Black Lives Matter movement going on in the background, is although we're an educational organisation, so we're not, we're not exactly associated with Black Lives Matter, of course, we do believe in Black Lives Matter and we do believe education is very powerful. So during that time, uh, we believed that we just needed to do something that was going to make a massive change. And we did that. In that in that whole three weeks, we managed to make partnerships with people like m &S. Um, We managed to just get in touch with people like David, um, a well-known historian, and our social media engagement just skyrocketed. Like, it was, in, it was very... But I think during those three weeks as a team, it was very bittersweet because like the, I guess the engagement and recognition that we gained from that um, period of time was out of the fact that George Floyd was killed and um, the Black Lives Matter movement. So it was very bittersweet that we were able to, you know, shine in those times. Like, as, as much as it's amazing that we have been given all of these opportunities moving on from then, um, it's still very disheartening that it had to come from something like that. But I guess, yeah, I, I, we just have to make the most of it. And we've definitely, definitely gained so many amazing opportunities from that, from that movement. My sincerest hope is that the Black Curriculum helps highlight the need for Black education, not just in October, but all year round. As we can hear from the stories from Savannah and Shabazz and Bethany, they're Black all year round. 
My thanks go to the three wonderful women and to all of the organisations and people that are seeking and serving to uplift black people, not just in October, but all year round. Black Guys in a Box will be back with you very soon. <laughs>